The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. I had Andrew Walker on today. He's the executive director of the Eamon Carter Museum, and he was kind enough to fly out to do this in person. And wow, it was really worth it for me. And I think for him as well. It uh, went two hours, so we're going to make this into a two-episode podcast. And the thing that really is unique, I guess, about this podcast is we really got into what it means to be a museum, the things that you have to look at for the future, and how things are changing, both from the way you collect and culturally. And it seems to me that the Eamon Carter is really on top of this and doing some amazing uh, exhibitions. They've got one that's on um, indigenous art right now and uh, photography, as well as just how they approach the way that they see their community in Fort Worth, but also as a national kind of uh, exhibit, uh, a museum that really sets itself apart from others. And one of the things I didn't know is they have the probably, if not the close to the largest collection of photography uh, in the country, right up there with the Getty, maybe more than the Getty. And so those kind of things come out when you get the chance to spend time and really understand what an institution does. And more importantly, to some extent, what I'm interested in is how Andrew got there and why, and his role in, you know, being an executive director of a major Western Museum, but also just how do you get there, right? How do you end up in that position? And he has a unique and interesting story, as so many people do, that I get the opportunity to talk to, and Andrew didn't disappoint. So this is a two-part episode. This is episode one. Love that stuff. But he's been doing this AI stuff, right? And and there's a program that he's related to that you ask it a question, and it spits out a... Um, article. So he asked, what is there, what do you think about the current trend to have non-art historians be directors, museum directors? And it gave this, you know, right thing, which was, you know, it was fairly simplistic, but it was useful. And, um, but it's been that, like, and there has been this thread of comments, like, uh-huh. I don't think art historians should ever be directors. Uh-huh. They don't think that? <laughs> well, it's, you know, it used to be a it used to be the the, the uh, default, and now it's starting to change pretty dramatically. So. Yeah, we're talking. By the way, we're now going to start. You ready to start, yeah, Andrew sure. Walker? Okay. We have the. You're the director, right, of the Eamon Carter? Is that the official yeah. title? I didn't that's, know if there was a special. No, that's yeah. the title, executive director. But yes, that's, see, there always the one is on my card. <laughs> executive director <laughs> of the Eamon Carter, and. Andrew, you've been there since what, 2010, something like that? I came actually in uh, 12 years ago to, to this month. Yeah, yeah. I came in January of 2011. Oh, 2011. So, yeah, yeah, to, yeah 12 years basically. Yeah. So, what do you think about being the director there? I'm just, I love that museum, by the way. That is like one of my all time favorite museums. It's a, you know, it's a great institution that has a pretty rich history. 
So what was funny about my getting the job in a certain way was I had known about the Eamon Carter as an as a you know art historian in training. Right. Because when I chose to focus on American art, that was the institution that often and during my you know graduate years was generating some of the most important scholarship mm. on American art. Mm. So I just knew about it because they were doing the most interesting work. And, but that was broadly by that time for a, a scholar or for a graduate student in art history, the Eamon Carter wasn't known as a Western art museum. It yeah, was known as an American art museum. Kind of, isn't it kind of still that way? I mean, your collection is super deep and all American art. It I mean, is. I mean, I do, I must admit when I think of it and I tell people, I say, Oh no, it's a great Western art museum, partially because there's all the other museums around it that kind of specialize in other things. But, you know, I went to the website and I'm looking at, at you know, what's you actually hold and it's pretty insane. Well, it is, it's a, you know, it's a master works collection. And mm. that was the driving force of the, of the founder. I mean, Eamon Carter was the technical founder, but he was dead by mm. the time the museum came and was birthed. So his daughter, Ruth, was really the person that built the the institution, the organization, the, mm. its mission, its vision. And in those early years, because she was young, she was mm. in her late 30s when oh, she wow. took over this in Texas. Yeah. A, you know, a powerful woman. Yeah. But in Texas, uh -huh. yeah, <laughs> um, filled with Frederick Remingtons and Russells, exactly. right? Yeah. Not the most, uh, not the most um, 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 soft world yeah. as yeah. you might imagine. But she, but she wanted to honor her father, who was largely interested in the American West, and mm. in particular, as you were saying, Frederick Remington and Charlie Russell. But she didn't. She that wasn't her favorite. Mm. And she had trained in her own life in the classics of American Impressionism and, and even earlier. And um, she, her, the first painting that she would always talk about buying, much to her father's chagrin, was a Van Gogh. Yeah. And he wow. was like, yeah, he was like, what are you doing wasting your money? <laughs> <laughs> and do you still have that piece? No, that that was that, you know, was early in her so let's say probably in her 20s. Wow. And so that moved, you know, as paintings often do in collections that are evolving and changing. And when she had the mission to take up her father's desire to build an American art museum for, the, for Fort Worth, but mm. regionally as mm -hmm. well, she started to shift. And she was really quite brilliant. And she had a great board that she established early on. And Peter Hasserick was one of the first oh, wow. um, creators there, yeah, right? Legendary, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And it, he and the team there, Mitch Wilder was the first director, and he as well was kind of legendary. More in the native, in the indigenous material, in Africa mm -hmm. and Alaskan was his area of expertise. What but years would this have been? This would have been in '64. Okay. No, well, '60. Mitch came in '61. Okay. So that and that's when the museum opened. '61. Yeah. Okay. And uh, but a few years later, they came up with an idea that Peter helped to to codify, which was based on an idea that Bernard Devoto had written about in his books on Lewis and Clark in particular. And it was this notion of what was called Westering, which mm. was largely the belief in the American progression of 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 um, of 
populating America that it moved west. Mm. So the idea was called westering and that there was always a frontier. And once they kind of established that as their collecting parameters in landscape largely, it was largely territorial. It was the idea that the land moved west. Mm. They, she found, and the, the, the board found it possible to buy Thomas Cole and Fitzhenry Lane and mm-hmm. others um, that were more classically Eastern right. because that at one time was the West. Yes. So it was kind of creating this narrative through the collection that was telling a larger story than just what Remington and Russell contained. And then as that moved through its first couple, well, first almost two decades, but let's say the first 18, 15 to 18 years of the mm-hmm. museum, it then shifted to be where we're going to move away from the notion of Westering. I've satisfied my obligation as the leader of this organization, Mrs. Ruth, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm, mm-hmm. of course, putting words into her mouth. Right. So take is it. She's still it around. Is. She passed away in 2013. OK. So I had the pleasure of working with her for about two years. Oh, nice. But then and she was the first what was the first official female, but also yeah, female trustee of the National Gallery. And that began to really affect her and the desire to have an American art collection that wasn't tied to the even this westering notion and so really in the late 70s the early 80s that model got blown apart and Mm. the museum started collecting more broadly um american art and and who makes those kind of decisions is that a board decision is that a ruth decision what is that well i tell you it's a great question because the way it would have functioned at that time it would have been a combination of you know, strong curators mm. and um, who had the vision to understand what the possibilities were. It would have been Ruth building on this idea that she had early on right. that if Fort Worth was going to be a nation or I'm sorry, a city of significance, it had to participate in the national dialogue. And so the notion of just having a museum to the American West wouldn't have allowed that to happen. So that's where that Western idea came that gave elbow room, basically. Mm-hmm. And then as it grew and matured over time, right, the collection grows, Right. that the, the idea that Fort Worth has a premier American art museum of the nation became important. So she was moving that narrative. The curators were understanding that opportunity, and the board was supporting it. Mm-hmm. So the board, of course, and the relationship that the museum has has always had with the foundation that Eamon Carter established um, really began developing a acquisition program that began to see the significance of um, William Michael Harnett, began to see the significance of Thomas Aikens Mm -hmm. um, as telling the rich and nuanced story of American art. Didn't mean they didn't continue to collect with with a sort of lean towards the West, so part of what would happen and this, I don't know if, um, if this is a part of the story that you've heard about the museum, but um, um, uh, many times, let's say, for example, one of the areas of focus that happened after that first 20 years, let's say, was in the Stieglitz group, American Modernists. Yes. And of course, there was a lot of Western ties within the American Modernists. Right. So the museum could build on um, 
George O'Keefe. Yeah. You can build on Marsden Hartley. You can right. build on Stuart Davis and have ties into the American West mm -hmm. because maybe there would be out of 10 pictures, two that were Western scene, scenes or maybe three. Right. So there was this ability to say, well, the West has always played a role in the American narrative that extended beyond the territorial narrative that was early established um, to really explore an aesthetic narrative that was impacting um, a broader view of mm -hmm. American modernism in those critical years in the interwar period. So the, the museum was very elastic in that way. Um, but you could always sort of say, well, we are in Fort Worth and we right. are in the American West and therefore um, a scene of, of um, Rancho de Taos by O'Keefe made right. imminent sense. But there was also the Birches. There was also, you know, yeah. other works that she would have done. Yeah, and she the, did. I mean, you have a very deep collection of O'Keefe. Yeah. And one and thing a variety that people that, of them. It's true. And one of the artists, this is an unknown story. Well, there are two unknown stories that I'll throw in here. One is that um, one of the artists that Ruth started her demonstration of the possibilities beyond Remington and Russell was Stuart Davis. Yeah, you and, got some killer ones. And we have eight paintings yeah. by Stuart Davis, and everything he did reproductively on paper, as well as a number of drawings. So the depth that we have in Stuart Davis is little known. It's not as big as Remington or Russell, right. but it's another area that you could actually do a strong study sure. of this particularly important artist. And I think as it folds back on Ruth's impact, it was the first modern artist mm. that she brought in, in in 1965, I think, 66. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, this was early. Yeah, I wonder what that take was when she said we need to collect half some Stuart Davis. <laughs> well, there's a great story because Jean de Menil from yes, Houston I know that is. Yeah. had introduced this painting called Blips and Ifs, which was yeah. one of the last large mural-sized easel paintings that Stuart Davis did. And it was done in 64, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm terrible with the dates, yeah, that's okay. but it's somewhere in there. And... um he introduced it to her. And so it was one of the first major acquisitions she brought to the board. And there was, there was like consternation, not in a bad way. It was just like, well, wait a minute. Right. I bet. I mean, cause I've seen the image. I know what it looks like. And it would, you it's know. New York. First yeah. Of all. Yeah. It's, it's abstract. Yeah. Put it next to, uh -huh. you know, dash semi abstract. Timber. Right? Yeah, well, that's yeah, true. I mean, you semi. Can, yeah. I mean, cause you can recognize the forms yeah. and figures. You can. But and there's language in there. Yes, exactly. It's, you know, relating to it, notions not only of commercialization, but also jazz. Right. So there's a lot of things going on, but very different than Dash for the Timber, right? Yeah. <laughs> Both great, though. <laughs> Both absolutely yeah. great. Uh -huh. And I always fold this on to a, you know, an add-on to the story is one of the first major um, commissions. It wasn't really a commission, but it was sort of a commission, was um, Henry Moore's um, Three Totems it's, is outside. Yes. And Again, this is early on. This was 64 again. Right. And it's outside, so it's a signature piece. It's almost right. like a, a brand image for people in the city. And it's a British artist. I was going to say, he's not American. No. And, you know, at the time, there's some... I've been through the archives on this um, because we took a group to London this year. And we spent time out at the Henry Moore studio. Yes because of that. And I wanted to understand the narrative. And 
she was presented with somebody saying, but this is not an American artist. And she right. said, but it's a great work of art. Yeah, <laughs> and it is. <laughs> and it is. And so, you know, at that point, she wanted to also brand the museum as a forward, progressive, yes, um, modern institution, which you maybe could do with Remington and Russell, but not so much. No, and this is, <laughs> this is again, like mid-60s kind of time frame that she's doing this, yeah. yeah. And this, the great final story on the the Moore was she had commissioned along with um, some local cultural leaders, um, a man named Sam Canty and Philip Johnson, who was mm, the architect, architect of yeah. the first building and all yeah. the buildings actually, yeah. um, but also a very influential right leader in aesthetics yeah, in America sure. in that period. And I think he was at MoMA by that point. I think he was at MoMA by that point. So he, he had a platform that was pretty visible. Mm. And they had commissioned Alexander Calder mm. to design three Western-themed um, stabiles mm -hmm. that were to be put outside, mm. right? And he came to Fort Worth. And they went out, and apparently he was a rather rambunctious. This is Calder, or is yes, this, Calder. Yeah, okay. This is Calder. Um, he let's say he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't. Um, um, he he had um, mm -hmm. exceptional behaviors that were a little outside of the decorum, maybe of huh. Texas at that time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and which you know she only Ruth alludes to in her recalling of the narrative, not in a bad way. She just said you know he was he was fairly large in yeah. his personality, yeah. and he made the three designs. We have the Metcats still. Yeah, I saw um, one of them online. Yeah. Yeah, and it isn't it great. Yeah. And but they all rejected them. So is and they didn't really they being the board. Well, Philip Johnson, Ruth, and Sam Canty oh, I again, see. this okay. local cultural leader Got at the it. time. Okay. And so they never pursued it. So mm. they had the Metcats, they just didn't take it to the next stage. I see. And then she came upon these these moors. And she said, Well, this is what we need. And that's how the whole ah, story. So the story was, you know, there's it's it's like Calder got supplanted for more, basically. More, yeah. and it was when we were in in England this summer or this fall at the studio. The thing that was interesting, Mark, was this was the moment that in the '60s that more exploded on yeah. the American scene. Right. So in the you could also see it as Ruth demonstrating that the that the um, the Carter was on the edge of what was very contemporary right. for the for the United States. Big time. And very different than what Dallas would have done. Yes. I think Calder, I think Moore would have been a little too contemporary mm. for Dallas at the moment. Which is weird, right? Yeah. Because they had there was this whole fracas in Dallas over Picasso being too, <laughs> you know, too avant-garde. Really? And yes. Oh so <laughs> so here's this, you know. This junior Dallas in Fort Worth making these pretty, pretty substantive um, messages about um, aesthetic sophistication. And that's exactly what Ruth wanted the Carter to be mm. at the same time that it was being very um, respectful of her father's interest in the American West. So I don't know if that oh, yeah. opens up at all. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that says... Like, so let's talk about the Marston Hartley or Hartley's. I mean, I love his work, but yes. you have that early piece, the 1914, yeah. that was like a flag, one of his flag oh, things. Oh, one yes. of his, yes, the yes. Indian symbols. Yes, yes. that one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. How did that come into being? Because that's an unbelievably important piece. It is. And, you know, this period of time, um, 
in the in the this so this would have been in the nineties. Mm. And eighties and nineties is when the the modernist story started to unfold. Right. And at that time the director was Jan Mueller, who was um really the first outsider. Yes. Non, let's say non-Texas bred director. I mean, Mitch Wilder came from Colorado, but he, you know, he established and the the curators at the time, which included Rick Rick Stewart, Peter Hasserick, and Ron Tyler. Mm. And both Rick Stewart and Ron Tyler became directors. So there was this really close-knit leadership um cabal, I guess you would mm -hmm. call it, where there were they were deeply associated with the institutional history. Jan was a little bit of a bridge because she brought that narrative of a broad understanding of American art to the museum and hired Doreen Bolger, who you may or may not know, but she was the director. She was a Met curator, then went to the Carter um, for a period of five years, five, six years. And then she was director at RISD and director at Baltimore. Mm. Um, so she was a substantive um, um, art world figure. Right. But she also brought, when she came from the Met, that bigger story, mm -hmm. right? She knew it and she helped build super important exhibitions and also super important acquisitions in that period of time. But Rick at that time, Rick Stewart at that time was, you know, he made, he cut his teeth on the Dallas Nine. So it was that Texas Southwest um, story of that would what bridge realism and surrealism. Mm -hmm. And at this time that he was the kind of lead curator moving towards being the director, um, he was fascinated with the modern, the modernists. And I feel like I'm putting words into his mouth, so I won't. Mm -hmm. I won't project onto Rick too much, but what happened factually was he brought that picture, which he had seen, I want to say in Dallas, I could be wrong. He had seen it though, and he knew that had to be at the Carter. Mm -hmm. And so he worked super hard to bring that and the Demoth painting that we yes. have as well um, as kind of foundational um, works that would build that modernist story in a very high level, at a very high level. Right. And the benefit of the Indian symbols was, of course, it, you know, put its elbow towards the West. Right. Which was something that he was aware of and wanted to have happen. Yes. And Hartley <coughs> was in Taos. I mean, he was yeah, there he was. like 17, 18, I think he came in. Yes. I, and you may know this. You'll know this better than I do. But he didn't have such a great experience as I remember. You it. mean in Taos? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a true statement. But and he produced some amazing he things. He did. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, one of the things, one of the works that we have as well is from his, he had a Guggenheim to go to Mexico. Yes. And he painted, this is when he did some of his occult pictures, but he painted a series of super important landscapes. And we have one of those mm. as well. So that it, it kind of, what we have in Hartley reaches across his, career, mm -hmm. not quite as the same depth as um, Stuart Davis, but again, very representative, right. um, which we also have with George O'Keefe, which we have to a lesser degree of Stuart Davis. And when I you, mean, not Stuart Davis of, um, who's the other guy? Um, the other American modernist who went to Taos for a short period of time. And oh, Mar uh, um, Marin. You Marin, have, thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have Marin from his, his New Mexico phase right. and then from his late works yes. um, um which would be back on the east coast and when you get these 
like critical pieces like this one of the Hartley in uh, the early 90s. Does that help bring out other pieces that people go, oh, yeah, we want to donate to this museum because they have this <coughs> and this would add to, you know, we we like this Hartley. We like his work and we want ours to be in the same light as that piece. Is that a, Does that happen? Or is it you have to get these things by buying them? Versus actually people. It's a great. Them. It's a great question, yeah. and it's another qualification of the museum's history, which we've been trying to change a little bit um, since my tenure, certainly. But because it was, and this is the nature of all of the museums in Fort Worth, um, although they're all evolving. But so the Carter family, mm -hmm. Ruth, and then the subsequent generation. Um, of her children, of her kids. And they're still involved? They're still involved. Yeah. Not The board is, I would say, 30% family and 70% mm -hmm. out, you know, people who are not. Mm -hmm. So it's a good balance. Mm -hmm. um, but they're very, um, they're very involved in the continuance of the legacy. Mm -hmm. And part of that legacy that Ruth started was masterpieces, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. so the requirement until you reached a tipping point was really directed by the acquisition opportunities that the museum had. Mm -hmm. So they were board approved. They were often foundation supported mm -hmm. financially, and they weren't having to make, I'm going to say it this way, and it's only over a period of time. It's not, um, it's not a rule. They didn't want to compromise by taking the works that others had collected that may not meet the qualifications of what was seen as the floor to the ceiling of the collection, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I get it. So for, for the major pieces that constitute the collection, they have been purchased through the museum. Mm. And the, where that's different, because this is the second unknown story about the Carter, is because Ruth... And the family, but Ruth, and it goes back to her father in a very in a very specific way, but she really manifested it. The museum has been a center for knowledge creation about American creative experience since its inception. Mm. And in order to do that, <clears throat> she built up and had the vision to build up a, a, a research library mm -hmm. that... Um, continues today to be the biggest west of the Mississippi mm. for American art. And is that special works as well? So for research, as far as it's things that like are donated <laughs> to it, artists, you know, papers and those kind yes. of things. We're, we have an archive program yes. that has um, right now, I think it has six um, photo archives. Mm. So that's the other nuance to this is that um, not specifically for Ruth for aesthetics, but her brother, Eamon Jr., mm -hmm. um, was a fascination with photography. And that bridged both the aesthetic and the historical, right? So most museums in the 60s, except for MoMA, mm -hmm. were collecting, if they collected photographs, they collected them for documentary reasons. Mm. The Carter did kind of both. Mm. So we have a, a huge depth about the Western expansion. And, and several of the artist archives helped to support that. Um, E.R. Smith is one, the sort of cowboy photographer um, that we have all of his work, mm. basically. Um, and so you're able to show that progression west 
territorially from 1890 through 1925, let's say, through his work. But that also was, that led to other people um, bringing those collections, which were hugely affordable in the 1960s. (laughs) I mean, in mass, right? You would just buy like, I'll buy that truck full of photographs. (laughs) (laughs) And so the Carter had the wherewithal to do that and then cull it over time so that it maintained a level of excellence while at the same time could tell a rich full story. So you could do that research piece of it that is visually coordinated with the Western expansion of the United States and the very, right? I think in, in photography is a medium that was intimately tied to the American West. Yes. More so than I think than the East for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And so we're able to maintain that story at a very deep level. And then as that grew, I would say beginning in the Mm seventies, it started to, um, and through this period of shift, it started to be much more driven by the fine art idea. So right now we probably have the largest collection of American photography in the United States. Somebody at the Getty is going to call you and say, right. wait a minute. <laughs> um, or, but when you think about it as an American art collection right. and not an international collection, and by number, we have about 60,000 mm. exhibition prints and over a quarter of a million um, negatives Wow, that maintain this story. But as I said, over time, it became much more um, aesthetically driven. And so now it's also being able to tell a rich story of American experience. But we've collected American photography uh, in ways that um, would would compete with what MoMA does, would compete with what the Met does, compete with. And we'd become a center for collectors mm-hmm. as a place where they want their work to be. In other words, they can be collectors who donate work and they can be photographers who donate work. Right. But they recognize that in Fort Worth, there's this museum that actually has made a commitment over largely its entire history to the medium and to its ability to um, enhance the notion of creativity in America. And so that's where it happens more readily um, that when we do something significant, it brings people to us. Got it. In the fine art, we're moving. We want to move in that direction, Mark, because um, it just it just allows us to be more dynamic. And so we've been in a process of building a national collector base mm. who can understand that. Let's say they're from New York, or they're from St. Louis, or they're from Tucson, you know, Tucson, <laughs> right? Or you know, right. Oklahoma City. Um, right. th- um, or California, or where was it? San Diego. Recently, I was out, where they have those relationships with their local institutions, where they may, because that's largely where they made their wealth, right? right. That they're very committed to those institutions. But part of their legacy can also be playing on this national plane, where at the Carter, um, you can demonstrate your commitment to American art. At a in a collection through maybe one donation. Yes, that's all it needs to be. Yeah, it's the right but, donation. Right, if it's, right, <laughs> if it's the right donation, we've had that conversation too. But we're you know we work on it, and and it's about cultivation. It's about relationship building. It's about recognizing that part of the future for the Carter and its identity, mm-hmm. which includes the American West. In, in other words, building relationships of Western art collectors. 
um, means having a bigger, more nationally based, um, committed group of individuals. Have you guys ever thought about just taking your photography and branding it as its own museum, as its own entity? It makes sense because yeah. A, it's the largest, right? I mean, you said it is. And that would just give you a two punch kind of thing. It seems like it, it's a natural. Well, it's, I mean, there are operational issues, of course, that I right. won't bore anybody right. with. <laughs> um, right. However, um, that has been part of um, um, an opportunity in long range planning mm. because, you know, we have, we've kind of filled our footprint, you know, physically. Right. In the cultural district. And then, as I think you were alluding to earlier, the cultural district in Fort Worth has three major art museums the Fort Worth Modern, the Kimball yes. um, Museum, and the Eamon Carter. Eamon Carter's American, the Kimball's European, and the um, Modern is, you know, contemporary. And then you have Sid Richardson's. That, oh, that's right. And yeah. Sid Richardson. I mean, it's got an amazing great. collection. Oh, my God. And yeah. we love Sid Richardson. Yeah. And we, you know, because we have that overlap. Right. Right. We, and Sid Richardson and Eamon Carter were, you know, famously Competing. friends and computers. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so they had, you know, there's a rich story there. And we have very strong relationships, though. The uh, Bass family is sort yes. of the overseers of that um, organization and foundation. And Scott Winteroud, who you may not have met yet, but he's the relatively new director there. And he's terrific. He's bringing all sorts of dynamism to their program. Nice. But we, yeah, we see that as um, a friend and a neighbor and somebody who reinforces, you know, a very important part of the story that we tell. But in that realm, when we've thought about what's our 30-year plan, right? of course, there's a sense of how do we expand? Do we expand? If we expand, what does it mean? How do we build our identity within the uh, continued identity as an important um, institution of national reputation, if not international reputation right. for Fort Worth. And, you know, Fort Worth, I'm sure like Tucson, is growing like nuts right? as far as population, which, you know, I've worked in Chicago, St. Louis, and Philadelphia. Which we are going to talk yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> but in St. Louis, um, that that's a city that's so rich in its own identity. But they were they were always kind of looking to the past as one of their points of significance, mm -hmm. largely around 1904. Oh, what happened there? Oh, yeah, that yeah. World's Fair. Yeah. Geronimo. <laughs> he was on the... Exactly. Uh, exactly. He, he was there. Yeah. And, you know, and in fact, the art museum there is the, you know, one, rema one of the remaining permanent buildings. It was the fine art building, not the whole thing, but, yeah. the, but the core of it was the fine art building at the World's Fair. So there's a physical identity with that time period. But, you know, it's always re-identifying itself as a, a kind of post-industrial city, right? Fort Worth doesn't have that problem. I remember getting there and they're just like, right. we're a can-do city. Well, we, we don't worry about, you know, wringing our hands. We just set a goal and we get it done. Yeah. And that's been my experience largely. And so with the idea that the city continues to grow at the rate that it does, that its wealth profile is, you know, changing and evolving. Right. And that it has these fundamental um, cultural institutions that are so rich. It's like, well, you better be ready to keep up because you're going to have to define your relevancy as the relevancy of the city continues to change. Right. And so, the, of course, I would say without pointing too hard that you're very, you're very prescient and wise in that suggestion because of, that would be yeah. a possible step. It is, makes total sense. 
I mean, you're doing a big show right now on indigenous photography, right? We are. Which yes. is just exploding, quite frankly, as it should. And, you know, you're setting those those standards already. You have the material. It just seems like, and that's the kind of thing that could be branded throughout the country, right? It could. Yeah. yeah. It could. You heard so, it here first. I know folks. we might have to invite you <laughs> to a board meeting to talk about you know, the, 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 the rich possibilities and the, the positive acceptance that would have in the, yeah, <laughs> in the world of art. Yeah, no, it's an um, important thing. But it is, and you know, the, your reference to the indigenous show that really demonstrates the um, ability for the collection to be creative because the curator um, um, is a long serving um, professional. His name is John Rohrbach. And um, he's been at the museum since the early 90s. He came when the last, well, the, the, the quote unquote last artist archive of photographers came, which was Elliot Porter. Mm. And his job at that time was to catalog and organize it and understand it. And then he grew into a permanent position as the senior photo curator. But in any way, John, you know, was was really thinking about one of the great strengths of the Carter's collection is the Anglo presentation of indigenous peoples um, going back to the beginning of photography. Mm -hmm. And we have one of the um, um, largest collections of um, native peoples, largely from the, um, the uh, tree groups that would go to to Washington or wherever, yeah. and there would be that whole group yeah. of photos. I have one right behind you. Oh, you do? Yeah. Dare go I ahead. Look? Yeah, go ahead. All the way. Turn around. Oh, yeah. There it is. <laughs> Sitting bulls right there, number 27. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and so his notion was, well, how could we tell this story about the representation of indigenous peoples that then turns at some point right. to being about um, the indigenous um, creative speaking for themselves and speaking to those events actually as well. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the co-curator, the lead curator, really with John was uh, Will Wilson, who's worked in that space very much in his um, his um, um, portrait photography um, project, which has extended for more than a decade, I think now, and largely takes as a point of aesthetic reference those. Um, portrait photos from the 19th century do you have a lot of curtis yeah yeah we have the whole portfolio yeah oh that's right you do yeah you have the whole book portfolio. we have right. the whole book and that came you know and uh just a couple of years before i came to the carter yeah. they were they, we had we had it but we didn't have it as a single body of mm. you know what i mean single yeah. work of art right and so when the museum was able to purchase that it did and there have been a few since then in fact i think there was one even more significant by its ownership than yeah. the one that we had, but you know we had already had one. We couldn't justify buying yeah, a second. Yeah, no, and they're <laughs> rare, and they're, you know, they're seven figures, and yeah, they you are. just need a set. Probably. Yes, we need a set. <laughs> um, but it's you know, of course, it's a foundational piece of that collection sure. as well. But what John realized as he was talking to um, indigenous photographers was it's not that they didn't understand that story but they didn't feel the need to have it as a precursor to their story mm -hmm. let us tell our story yeah and so that really and you know something that was very um, unique for john was he turned it over 
but the whole book that we've done, which is called speaking with light, um, is, is written and, and developed by in the indigenous community. And of course, Will, um, came in as the, the curator of that, of the project with John to, right. you know, John helped him navigate the logistics of the institution, but Will worked with the, and made the connections with the other indigenous creatives. Um, and so this project is unique for the Carter too, and has been part of our, you know, you, you've heard a lot, I'm sure about DEIA in the museum business and the notion, um, that sort of got, um, forwarded at an, at a accelerated rate with the pandemic and the social justice movement of the, of 2020, this is part of our, we were developing this project, of course, years before, mm -hmm. and in fact, initiated with the board support, a specific, um, collecting, um, program to, to build this collection of indigenous photographers. So it was supported by the board. That doesn't always happen. Right. Where the board says, we're going to give you this much money and you can do whatever you need to do in order to fulfill this goal. So from the perspective of looking at underserved communities in our um, aesthetic or in our artistic holdings, right. This was a major deficit. project for them. Well, it was a deficit, but a major decision on the part of the organization. And why do you think they went for it? What was that? They they could they see it, or was there a somebody who championed it? Or well, John, I mean, John and his and his his um, associate or his curator compatriot, you know, really have worked hard to identify that photography has such a um, powerful, um, expressive. Well, I'm powerful, expressive power. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I need an editor. But the, Perfect. the, the power of it Please is proceed. strong. <laughs> <laughs> the, the power is strong, and um, and that it it really gets to a certain aspect of um, creativity that the other mediums don't always yeah affect yeah. And so um, they were able to to demonstrate a case based on this years. I mean, literally, Mark, years of research. Um, looking at the Anglo, the outsider presentation right. of indigenous peoples, um, to say this is not the project we want to do. Yeah, this is not going to advance understanding or knowledge in the way that we could. But in order to do that, we ha the collection has to start to manifest it. Yes, and the the board understood that, yeah. and they said, really, for the first time in my time there, they said, well, here. Go at it. Nice. Which was great. Yeah. And and the con the uh, the um, consequence of that is that about eighty percent of the show yes is a collection show yes and your so collection is our collection nice. and I'm sure after the show though that will increase because we'll 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 of course acquire several of the works that are in the show right in addition and one of my favorites is by. Um, um, an artist named Sarah Sense, mm -hmm. and you know she weaves. She sort of, in fact, she she was at a show in at the Tucson Art Museum that I visited mm -hmm. in November. I don't right. know if that's still up. Yeah, I think it is actually. But she, her, one of her categorical. I don't won't retell her story, but one of her aesthetic choices was to um, cut up her photographs and then weave them together in patterns that um, echo the designs of her tribal 
um, pottery designs mm-hmm. and, and and textile designs, mm-hmm. so that when you see these photographs, you can still see them as photographs, but when you look at them, right. it's like com- something completely different. Right. And I don't know why I love it. I just three dimensional. It's different. It's, it's unique. incredible. Yeah, yeah I get and, it. And we commissioned her, so this was one of the unique parts of the show, which has. Um, at least this one commission, it probably has another one that I'm not remembering, but where we, you know, um, worked with Sarah to, um, design what's a, uh, triptych of work that helped to trace the, um, progression of, um, colonization, right? Sort of pre-reservation and pre, Mm -hmm. pre pre-discovery through discovery mm. and then beyond. And so she kind of encapsulates in this triptych this what the show is about in some ways, right? Which is, you know, we're in control of telling our story. Right. You're as, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's been super rich and we'll continue that. It probably will lead to we've had some discussion about um seeing this also be for the um the um Chicano and Latina sure. community as well, yeah. because that's another deficit. I like that word Yeah, that we have in our collection where um, contemporary um, makers aren't represented at the level that we might show more conventional backgrounds of artists as far as that goes. So we'll see. That's yeah. not beneficial. So yeah. I'm, I don't want to tip my <laughs> hand here, but... That, of course, the success and the interest and the provocativeness of the narratives that came out of the Indigenous Project are making us think more intentionally about other groups that could be identified as having something important to say about their own experience. And I'm guessing this sets you apart from, let's say, the Whitney, you know, because, I mean, they're an American, you know, painting, you know, or American art. I don't I don't know if they are embracing those kind of things as much being on the East Coast, but it seems like seems like they wouldn't. I don't know that for a fact, um, but I don't does... know. either. I don't know either. I mean, the, they do different things for yes. sure. And they're much more I mean, in some ways, they're much more immersed in the contemporary world. Right. Than I would say we are. We have a very vigorous and really only in the last you know decade. Uh, living artist program mm-hmm. for sure mm-hmm. but it's not exclusive at all and you know we have well i'll, I'll describe another project that's uh, uh that we're doing um that opens in march that shows one of the core beliefs that we have as a mission-driven um initiative mm-hmm. that the, that the whitney probably doesn't do because their their sense of history is different. Yeah, it's East Coast driven, really. Well, it's East Coast, but it really isn't. It doesn't really extend much. It doesn't extend at all beyond the 20th century, behind the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Right? So it doesn't go back yeah. to the colonial federal period. It certainly doesn't go back to the era of exploration. Yeah. So what we're able to do is, and what we've committed to um, curatorially, as well as, you know, from a knowledge creation point of view, is that um, we believe very strongly and this is not rocket science, that the historical narrative has strong relationships to contemporary issues. And so that we're aware that part of our responsibility in collecting the past or even telling the past is making it connect to the future. 
issues, right, of yeah. the present and to the future. Yeah. And so one project that um, one of our curators, her name is Maggie Adler, um, has developed was taking a major work of art, uh, for which I have a story, if you want to hear it. Yeah, of course. Um, of John Quincy Adams Ward's The Freedman. So it was a sculpture made by this artist in 1863. Mm-hmm. And it was largely connected at the time to the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm. Part of its uniqueness in that narrative is that it's a singular African-American slave or enslaved person who is um, is demonstrating his own agency and his, free, and his freedom. So he wears a shackle, but he's in this um, position or this stance of potential energy. He's about to stand up mm-hmm. from a a seated position and it's beautiful. And the, the, the complexity of that, of that sculpture in its own day was as much as the debates around abolition and emancipation were as confused and as complicated as you might say the debates around something today would be, which seem easy, right? But right. There's a whole spectrum of points of view Right. that that sculpture never really exploded in the way that people thought it might. Mm. They thought it might be in every household, like the, mm. the I get it. The Rogers, you know, plaster sculptures would be. There was a there was a movement short lived to make it a monumental sculpture mm. that would live on the you know, on the mall mm-hmm. somewhere. And that ended up being a different sculpture that mm-hmm. showed emancipation, but it was the supplicant enslaved person Standing looking up, up at yeah. Lincoln. Yeah. Right. Right. So it was the white man savior, so to speak. And um, so what Maggie was interested in was to take the complexity of that moment and see how that continued notion of freedom or emancipation continues to be um, one that has relationship to generational trauma that has a whole complexity that's tied up into our, the racial politics of mm-hmm. America since the Civil War, right? We want to, don't even need to go into d- detail about that. And of course, there were, there's going to be a range of people's points of view on that as well, which I've you know heard of a lot mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. But we invited seven black American contemporary artists to that are nationally based. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a couple, I think a couple that are from Texas, but they're from all over the country to present work that gives their perspective on freedom and emancipation. And do they talk about that sculpture? Some as well? of them do yeah. not all of them. Yeah. Some of them do. Some of them don't. Um, but the, the, in the way that we've done other projects, um, there's a historical find, and even with the indigenous project, there's a very brief historical foundation that then breaks out into the story that I've already talked about. But this one will have a historical work around the freedmen to sort of demonstrate how this notion of black agency was um, mollified, qualified, mm-hmm. even in its own day. Mm. And then, of course, led to the um, post-Reconstruction era that sort of rolled back some of the prog- progress that was happening in the years right after the Civil War. And is this a show? Yes. Yes. It'll and be it- a, a large scale. It'll be a main stage, what we call main stage exhibition. And that comes when? March. And that'll last maybe four months? It'll last until June. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting in 1863, this is the, in the winter of 1863 is when Lincoln signs the, the proclamation to round up the Navajos, the Diné. Yes. And takes them to Bosque Redondo and interns them to 1968, uh, to 1868. And it is in that winter that they're starting their long walk. Same, same it's time. Crazy, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It's I mean, insane. that's the, the thing that's so fascinating about even the juxtaposition of these various narratives, right, that have become so under a microscope since 2020 for different reasons. Because, of course, people have been talking about this for, what, a generation at least. Yes. At least. Yes, more. More. <laughs> and um, is that the, it's, and this, I just comes up, and I'd be curious as to your thoughts on this, because as I was delving into in the last year or so, the, my fascination with, and that sounds so, fascination is the wrong word. My commitment to understand um, more deeply um, the experience of indigenous peoples right. in, in their country right. is the power of generational trauma. Oh, yeah. No, that's real. Which is, you know, I have, my sister lives and works in Atlanta and she's a school psychologist in one of the most difficult areas of the Atlantic, Atlanta public school system. Mm -hmm. And she's like, it's the same. It's the same thing. The generational trauma that she sees every day. Right. And the amount of, of trafficking, the amount of abuse. I mean, I don't want to make it only about that, but there are much, those aspects of of society's difficulties yes. are more visible in communities that have experienced generational trauma. Yeah. And it, it looks like it's also genetic that it can affect, you know, your genes too. Yes. When you have these kind of things, you know, not just a cultural, but a real genetic issue that, you know, when you got little and big T traumas hitting you constantly, you know, for generations, that's a real thing. There's no doubt about it. It's a it's a it's a factor not to be not to be overlooked, right, right? And certainly not to be dismissed, right? And that's been you know that's been the notion of some of what I think we're trying to present in real terms, with without qualifying the narrative, yeah. As part of our commitment to telling American history, yeah. Because I've always said this since I started studying American art that. And maybe just because we're here. I mean, I'm in the country for which I study right. or I, I participate in is it's always about history, too. Mm -hmm. It's not just about aesthetics, where if you go to a different museum like the Kimball, which isn't to say they're not deeply immersed in the historical significance of the periods they explore, but their 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 breadth the breadth of their commitment is so much larger that oftentimes it's driven by the aesthetic narrative, yes, and not the historical narrative. And when I was saying that part of our commitment to history to life today is making certain that history has relevance in the stories and in the engagement that we um, open our community to experience. Mm. And that can be through coming to the shows that can be through, you know, we learned in the pandemic period, the importance and the viability of digital engagement, right. but we also are getting out into the community in a much more visible way. I've often wondered why museums don't count 
as part of their impact when we go out into the community centers and work with a group over a period of years, why that's not considered qualified engagement where we actually count the numbers. Now, maybe we don't care, right? Who cares? Mm -hmm. But it's still an aspect of our impact that doesn't always get quantified. Right. Well, and it's not just a number quantification. It's also, you can change somebody's life completely, you know, forever by one time that they see art or understand, oh, this is a viable thing that I get to do, make, see, engage in. And it's life-changing. That's I think that's the thing about museums is they really can be life-changing. And when you're doing culturally um, interesting and retrospective looks, then it also can add to, you know, the understanding of, oh, this is me. Oh, I fit in here too. It's not just a bunch of you know, old dead white guys doing stuff, but I'm part of this scenario as well. That's right. That's right. And I'm not dead, but I'm an old white guy. So I have to be (laughs) very conscious about, (laughs) you know, my position in all of these narratives. Yeah, I know. That's true. And, and the, the, the one thing that I think part of the notion of diversity, and this is, this needs a lot of nuance, which I'm not going to be able to do, but I also think it's super important to have ideological diversity open in the spaces that you present narratives in mm-hmm. where somebody who may disagree or may have a different reception right. of the idea that you're presenting is welcome. Yeah, we call it free speech. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's not always popular. No, but it should be. That's why, <laughs> why America's flourished. It's because we have that. I have a question concerning uh, Crystal Bridges. Just because, you know, they're an American museum. They've done an amazing job, right? They have, yeah. And how do, do you have to, do you look at them as competitors? I mean, I'm sure they're colleagues too, but you're fairly close geographically. How does that, if you if you can or want to expound on that? Well, it? we love them yeah. for sure. And I think part of it, I mean, to be very practical about it, is um, we... Um, we have developed a relationship that um, identifies all of our strengths to the best effect. So mm-hmm. part of the story is that, um, and and again, I'll be very brief on this, that Alice Walton mm-hmm. was a, a very good friend of Ruth's. And in the years that she lived in both Fort Worth and in Palo Pinto, which is just a town or a county just west of Fort Worth. Um, they were very close. And Alice was on the board of the Carter for, you know, more than, I think more than a decade. Mm. And I, you know, I worked with her a bit in the early years um, up through Ruth's death and then a few years beyond where as Crystal Bridges began to be all consuming that the, uh, her service on the board became more difficult time-wise for her, but she was super generous and really recognized the Carter's benefit and its opportunities and its significance um, at Ruth's death through a very, um, a very generous support of the museum. And, um, and as we've grown, we've been in conversation, we've helped each other in, in structural ways. Um, but they have, they have huge ambition mm-hmm. and and they are remarkable in the way that they're able to manifest 
um, opportunities for change, real change, both in the in the structure of museums, but also in this commitment to diversity and equity and, and inclusion. One of the programs that has become an offshoot of Crystal Bridges is something called Art Bridges, mm. which is a is a, a way they have their own collection. They're deeply aligned with Crystal Bridges, but they develop um, exhibition cohorts mm -hmm. where a museum will serve as the foundation of that cohort and then develop projects out of their collection and in different ways. I don't even want to, they're still evolving, but um, that help to bring art to, which is one of Crystal Bridges' great benefits to um, communities that don't have access, right? right? So the Carter has become one of those um, foundational cohorts for Texas and mm -hmm. for the Southwest ultimately, but let's say for now for Texas, where we're, a, we're developing projects that will travel mm -hmm. to- Through, but they are through Crystal Bridges well, and you're a yes. cohort- we're a cohort well, museum. They support us. Got it. Financially uh, in the development. Yeah, and in super the, smart. Yeah. And they really developed this as a model for um, replication. Yeah. Right. So this could happen all over the country. And it is, um, it's still maturing, mm. but um, it is a super beneficial and important um, project. And we as two museums and two organizations that can support through collections important stories about American creativity, we are using our strengths to the best effect. Have we developed projects together? Not yet, not exhibitions. I, I think that's open to opportunity, mm -hmm. but we're also aware, as I think you're alluding to, is geographically right. we serve kind of the same part of the country. Yes, yes, and both have very strong collections. Yes. I mean, yours more Western bent, I think, and yeah. there's everything. <laughs> I theirs mean, is everything yeah yeah and a lot i think important eastern kind of things as well yeah but um and i think they're dipping their toe into native stuff at this point they haven't done a lot with that yet but i hope to see them do more of that as well i think they will i think they're probably did that did the native indigenous came out a bit in their craft show i think mm -hmm. that they did recently and certainly certain indigenous creatives were in their larger survey of contemporary of the you know their kind of version of the biennial mm -hmm. notion but um yeah i think the, I, th I think for sure they'll do more and it yeah. i wouldn't be surprised to see them start collecting yeah they're doing a little bit of it but they haven't really you know jumped in and they should i mean they're both of you guys you know there's lots of uh, native tribes around you there, know there are and part of what you know part of what we've been doing too just to build on that story a bit is beginning to develop the relationships within the um community the indigenous community in the region so that we have um, not only access to advice mm -hmm. but we can build the relationships that are necessary to manifest exhibitions potentially and as I was saying a little bit before we started, we we want you know for example we 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 anticipate developing a relationship with um, the School for Advanced Research in Santa Fe because mm -hmm. the idea the the um, methodological approach that they're really developing and introducing to the world of cultural um, interrogation investigation has already impacted our photography show mm. and you know to be able to look at 
the um, material culture of create of creative living creatives, but also historical is something that we we see as a, a frontier for us. Mm. And we haven't done it that much. I mean, in my time, we were one of the venues for the Diker collection, which yeah. is now at the Met. But yeah. beyond that, there hasn't been a lot of historical um, presentation of indigenous culture. 